This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 425,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week I'm going to recommend The Second Sex by Simone de Beauvoir. If you can't tell, I'm prepping a unit on existentialism for my philosophy class for next year, and I've really been enjoying my time reading Simone de Beauvoir. The Second Sex is probably one of her most famous works, and compared to almost everyone else I've had to read to get ready for this unit, she is very accessible. So, if you're interested, go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 392, The Lords of the Sea, part 3. By the second half of the 1500s, piracy was an established feature of Japan's civil wars, and the powerful pirate lords who had managed to amass large fleets and build impressive protection rackets were vying with landed lords for power and influence over the country. For seaborne warlords like the three Murakami families, business was better than it had ever been. With powerful sponsors like the daimyo or landed lord Morimoto Nari, they not only had their protection rackets, but licensed to go after the enemies of the Mori clan. And of course, all the while, they enriched themselves. If you've ever heard the phrase privateering, this is functionally another role the Murakami took on during this time. Privateering is when the captain of a ship is hired by a third party to attack that third party's enemies, and a part of their pay is the right to help themselves to any plunder or treasure they secure in the process. This sort of privateering work was a common way to make use of pirate groups around the world, and the Murakami were just as open to it as anybody else. After all, you get paid twice, once as a part of being hired, and once with what you take. What's not to like? But of course, this golden age of piracy was coming to an end, and this week we're going to return to the topic of the Murakami pirates to talk about how that happened. Of course, one of the tricky things about arrangements like the one the Murakami and the Mori had was that the Mori would sometimes make enemies of the sort of people one is better off not antagonizing, and in the mid-1570s the Mori happened to come to blow with one such man. That man was, of course, Oda Nobunaga, who by the 1570s was the undisputed master of central Japan, having brushed aside the opposition and crushed many other powerful warlords, on his way to securing his hold over Kyoto. In the late 1570s, Nobunaga was looking to eliminate one of his last real competitors for central Japan, the powerful religious movement known as the Iko-Iki. The Iko-Iki, or single-minded leagues, were bands of samurai and non-samurai who rallied to the cause of Jodo Shinshu, the true Pure Land Buddhist sect. These bands tended to form around specific Jodo Shinshu temples, although their relationship with the Buddhist priesthood itself was always a bit ambiguous. For Nobunaga, they represented an unacceptable form of competition for power, 
these bands of believers could and did pose a serious challenge to the ability of samurai to control the regions which the bands existed in. Eager to break the power of the Koiki, Nobunaga set his sights on one of their most prominent fortresses, Ishiyama Honganji, near the mouth of the Yodo River on the eastern edge of the Inland Sea. Ishiyama Honganji was both a fortified temple and a powerful trade site. The Yodo River connects Kyoto to the Inland Sea and thus the rest of Japan and the world, making control of the river's entrance an important strategic choke point in terms of managing the flow of goods into and out of the wealthiest part of Japan. Control of that trade made Ishiyama Honganji very wealthy, and the Ikoiki had put together an impressive fortress to defend this. Nobunaga first tried to take the fortress in 1570, but his forces were defeated and forced back. Starting in 1574, he began a lengthy siege, hoping to starve out the temple's abbot, Kenyo, and force him to surrender. It probably would have worked, too, except that Nobunaga's sunny disposition had made him a lot of enemies, and one of those enemies was Ashikaga Yoshiaki. Ashikaga Yoshiaki was the 15th and final Ashikaga shogun. By the time he came to power, the Ashikaga clan had been reduced to symbolic figureheads, governing a shogunate that had no actual power to enforce its will. Yoshiaki, however, had dreams of reviving the family fortunes, dreams that led him first to invite the warlord Oda Nobunaga to Kyoto, and then to turn on Nobunaga when it became clear that Nobunaga had no intention of sharing power with anyone at all. Yoshiaki was eventually expelled from Kyoto by Nobunaga and wandered hither and yon before eventually finding shelter and a spot to build a sort of government in exile, where else but in the lands of Mori Terumoto, who had taken over leadership of the Mori clan after his grandfather Motonari had passed away in 1571. Yoshiaki was able to convince Mori Terumoto to step in and try and relieve Nobunaga's siege of Honganji, Indeed, Mori Terumoto was more or less the ideal man for this job. Honganji's site, adjacent to a river, meant that simply surrounding it with an army was not enough for a successful siege. Nobunaga had to cut it off by water, too, or supplies could just be shipped in and out. To do this, Nobunaga relied on his own pirate lord by the name of Kuki Yoshitaka, who had contracted with the Oda to lead fleets on their behalf. Smashing the Oda forces on land would be a bit of a trick, but with the power of the Murakami behind him, Mori Terumoto felt reasonably confident he could at least break the naval blockade and relieve the siege. Indeed, Terumoto had one additional advantage in all of this, because a raid against Nobunaga was a different group of Iko-Iki fighters called the Saika League or Saika-Iki. The Saika League was a confederation of villages which banded together to resist the depredations of Civil War-era samurai, and which ended up becoming something of a military powerhouse in central Japan. The main reason they were able to do this was that they were able to reverse-engineer western guns and start manufacturing their own arquebuses, which they were happy to sell to friends in need. Armed with a bunch of Saika-Iki guns, the forces of the Noshima Murakami descended on the Oda clan blockade stationed along the Kizu River in August of 1576. Kuki Yoshitaka, it seems, was actually caught off guard by this as full-on sea battles were relatively rare during this period. Usually the more common approach to naval warfare was commercial raiding. 
Full-on naval assaults were risky after all, since the loss of too many ships would massively damage a seaborne Lorne's ability to make money and thus sustain his position. But with his guns and the advantage of surprise, Murakami Motoyoshi, commanding in the field on behalf of his father Takeyoshi, felt confident in his position. And to be fair, he ended up being right. The Murakami were able to defeat the Oda and drive back Kukiyoshitaka, opening up the path to relieving Honganji of the siege and blocking Nobunaga's ambition to smash the place to the ground, at least for now. The way in which the Murakami were able to accomplish this actually says a lot about the evolution of these pirate clans and their relationship with their patrons on land, because one of the innovations Nobunaga's fleet was making use of to establish its blockade were so-called atakebune, literally safe house ships, though I like Peter Shapinsky's translation, dreadnoughts. Atakebune were a new invention in sea-based warfare. Rather than the small raiding-style craft of the Sekibune, which was designed to quickly close with an opposing ship for a boarding action, Atakebune were designed to be floating fortresses. They had massive, castle-like turrets and essentially operated as floating fortresses. These early models were designed for hand-to-hand -hand fighting and for blocking off these sort of seaborne choke points in order to support a siege. Anyway, Murakami Motoyoshi appears at first to have been a bit stymied as to how to approach these Atakebune. In his reports to the Mori clan after the 1576 battle, Motoyoshi wrote, quote, The enemy had many soldiers as well as great ships built with turrets extending up from the sides of each ship. They had 200 escort vessels sailing on either side of the great ships. By the way, don't take those numbers at face value. I would just interpret that as a whole lot and they turned their rudders to take them into the mouth of the river. Then their land forces extended bridges to create an impregnable barrier. If we could not force a decision here in this battle, it did not seem we would be able to get the provisions to the citadel." Unquote. In other words, the Oda navy used these Atakebune to literally fortify the mouth of the river going up to Ishiyama Honganji, presenting a fortified barrier which the raiding fleets of the Murakami and the other anti-Oda forces would have a hard time breaking through. Motoyoshi, however, came up with a very good solution. He made use of a different firearm imported from China, hand grenades, which could set the tightly packed ships ablaze. Hurling these into the tightly packed warships, Motoyoshi's forces, quote, burned all their great ships until not a single one remained, unquote. But as you're probably guessing, Nobunaga did not take defeat lying down and would be swiftly back at it. In particular, he ordered Kukiyoshitaka, his naval commander, back to the drawing board to design a new Atakebune. These new designs were bigger than ever, 33 meters wide and 11 meters long, or 108 by 36 feet. Parts of the new design were even internally reinforced with iron to protect the crews, particularly around tactically important areas like the gunnery deck. Some records refer to the new ships as being fully clad in iron, calling them tekkosen, or roughly iron-clad ships, but that design would be prohibitively expensive and pretty top-heavy, so the sparing use of iron reinforcement is more likely. Even so, the ships were so heavy that some sources describe them as being unable to move independently, requiring tugs to get around. It's unclear if that's true, but it's certainly possible. As my mention of a gunnery deck may have clued you on to, these new ships even included gun ports for cannon, 
hard weapons to mount on smaller Sekibune since the ship's tinier frame had a difficult job absorbing the recoil. This was actually another area where seaborne pirate lords were very dependent on their landed patrons. Generally, the sea lords did not have their own gun foundries and had to buy arquebuses and cannons from landed lords who did. In particular for the Murakami clans, both the Mori and especially the Otomo clan of Kyushu, whose lord Otomo Sorin was a Christian convert with great commercial relationships with the Portuguese and their fancy gunsmiths, were great sources for cannons. Nobunaga, meanwhile, had his own sources from the Kunimoto gunworks outside Kyoto. Using access to these gunworks and his impressive resources, Nobunaga gave Kukiyoshitaka whatever he needed to build this new fleet, and by the sixth lunar month of 1578, it was ready. From their shipyards in the key peninsula, Yoshitaka's fleet set out for Ishiyama Honganji. An initial attempt to stop the fleet by some ships associated with the Saikaiki turned disastrous. The Saika ships attempted to close with the massive iron Atakebune and board them, at which point Yoshitaka's ships unleashed their cannons at close range to predictable results. The Oda fleet then arrived at Ishiyama Honganji, sealing off the mouth of the Kizu River in the seventh lunar month. Once again, a relief fleet was assembled, but this time the outcome was rather different. Here I will quote from the Shincho Koki, the Chronicle of Lord Nobunaga, which is a period history describing the exploits of Nobunaga and his followers. Quote, On the 6th of the 11th month, more than 600 vessels from the western provinces, these are the anti-Oda forces, came sailing towards Kizu. When Kuki Yoshitaka put to sea to confront them, they encircled him and a naval battle ensued in the offing toward the south. At first it looked as if Kuki would have a hard time stopping the attack but he drew the enemy vessels close to his six great ships, which carried many big guns, and then blasted what appeared to be the admiral. Intimidated, the enemy came no closer. Kuki then drove several hundred of their vessels up the Kizu estuary. Among the many onlookers, not one was left unimpressed by his exploits." Unquote. So the relief fleet was defeated, Ishiyama Honganji remained cut off, and in 1580 the temple finally fell and was burned to the ground, though the site of the temple, being very strategic, was then converted into the foundation of a future city, Osaka. However, it's not actually clear if the Noshima or any other branch of the Murakami clans were present at this battle, and it's likely they were not. Despite the fact that the Noshima were receiving patronage from the Mori clan and had sworn to fight for them, remember the oaths we read last time, by 1577 the family was also cutting deals with the Oda clan. In that year, Nobunaga issued an edict that ships coming from Noshima-controlled islands should have free access to Sakai, a port under his control, and in exchange the Noshima Murakami offered Nobunaga a baby hawk as a gift a token of submission on their behalf. Nobunaga even wrote Murakami Takeyoshi himself some letters implying there were ongoing negotiations for the Murakami to do some work on behalf of the Oda clan, though it's unclear if those came to anything, but generally speaking, it seems the Oda were able to buy off the Noshima Murakami at least in part. And the fact that Nobunaga was able to do this gets at one of the biggest flaws of this whole seaborne mercenary arrangement. These seaborne lords, whatever their oaths or protestations of loyalty, 
fundamentally were mercenaries, which meant they could not be depended on in the same way a traditional retainer could. For anyone seeking to pacify the entire country, this presented a big problem, and one person saw that very clearly. His name, of course, was Toyotomi Hideyoshi. Hideyoshi was the one to eventually bring these pirate lords to heel, but it took him a good long while and he had to do something he rarely did, which was to make compromises. For a quick refresher, in 1582, Oda Nobunaga was assassinated at the height of his power by one of his subordinates, Akechi Mitsuhide. When that assassination took place, Hideyoshi was off in western Japan. Nobunaga had decided to target the Mori clan and their Murakami pirate retainers in part because of the decision of the Mori to try and save Ishiyama Honganji from its siege. Hideyoshi had been directed to lead the campaign. This war, of course, was not just fought on land. Mori Teramoto called upon the Murakami to join him in this war against the Oda, and for their part, despite the possible ties these groups were forging with the Oda at this time, the Murakami bands answered this call and joined the Mori side. Hideyoshi, for his part, hired on the same seaborne lord who had led the naval battles around Honganji, Kukiyoshi Taka. And so the two sides geared up to clash again, with Kukiyoshitaka swiftly seizing two islands from the Murakami, Shoroshima and Awajijima on the eastern side of the Inland Sea, as bases for his fleet. The Kurushima Noshima Murakami, meanwhile, led raids against Hideyoshi's naval supply lines. However, here's the thing. While it's certainly true the stakes for this conflict were higher than they had been in the past, Nobunaga not really being known for being a forgiving person, this also meant the opportunities for profits among mercenary contractors like the Murakami pirates were higher than ever. After all, someone desperate for any edge they could keep against Nobunaga, as Teramoto was, was someone who'd be willing to make, oh, more or less any concession he was asked for. So early in the campaign, the Murakami started entertaining offers from Hideyoshi to swap sides, with Hideyoshi engaging in a back-and-forth letter-writing campaign to both Murakami houses, and to a few other seaborne mercenary bands who worked for the Mori, but we don't have time to talk about them. Hideyoshi tried to convince them of the inevitability of Oda victory, and thus the benefits of jumping ship now. And here's where things get a little tricky. This does seem to have worked to an extent. In particular, the Kurushima branch of the Murakami, led by Murakami Michifusa, seems to have been intrigued by these offers and started pressuring the other Murakami bands to go all-in on joining the Oda together. And he had a heads-up in at least selling the Noshima Murakami on this. Michifusa's sister was married to the Noshima Murakami head, Murakami Takeyoshi, which also meant that the family heir, Murakami Motoyoshi, yes, a new Murakami Motoyoshi, had some Kurushima blood in him. Motoyoshi seems to have been swayed by his mother and his uncle's points, enough that we have records of internal Mori clan letters showing serious concerns about the en masse defection of the Murakami during this conflict. However, that's not quite how things went down. The head of the Noshima Murakami, Murakami Takeyoshi, was not interested in defecting, particularly since Mori Teramoto and his uncle and close ally Kobayakawa Takakage basically fell over themselves, offering favorable terms to keep the Murakami on their side. Instead, the Murakami clan fractured. 
In the fourth lunar month of 1582, Murakami Michifusa declared his intention to defect with the Kurushima Murakami Navy over to the Oda side. The precise terms of the arrangement are a little bit unclear thanks to some lost letters between the two sides, but apparently the key component of the deal was the Kurushima Murakami getting a monopoly on trade and raiding out of Shikoku's Io province. The Noshima Murakami and Murakami Takeyoshi, meanwhile, played things closer to the chest. They delayed their decision on which side to support for as long as possible, while pumping both sides for as many concessions as possible. Ultimately, Takeyoshi decided to stick with the Mori, at least in large part because they offered him very favorable terms to make that happen, handing over a bunch of valuable maritime real estate to the direct control of the Noshima Murakami, and returning a bunch of Noshima hostages the Mori had taken the last time the Noshima backstabbed them in the 1570s, which we talked about last episode. In the letter making this offer to the Noshima Murakami, Mori Teramoto's uncle, Kobayakawa Takakage, included the phrase, quote, Your single-hearted loyalty is without compare, unquote, and I have to say, genuine props to him for getting that phrase out without choking on it, because he and his nephew were absolutely being strong-armed into accepting some pretty heinous terms. The split between the now pro-Oda Kurushima Murakami and the pro-Mori Noshima Murakami of course set up a pretty dramatic military confrontation between the two sides. The Kurushima won some initial victories, but then in the sixth lunar month of 1582, Noshima Murakami forces attacked the island of Kurushima itself, the home base of the Kurushima branch, and torched the Kurushima fortresses on the island to the literal ground, before then crushing the majority of the Kurushima fleet in a major sea battle off Io Oshima in the western inland sea. This set up a bitter feud between the Noshima and Kurushima Murakami, made even more complicated by the fact that it happened in the 6th lunar month of 1582, which is the same time Nobunaga was assassinated in Kyoto. When Hideyoshi got word of Nobunaga's death, he rushed back to Kyoto to slay Nobunaga's killer and claim the mantle of avenging his master, which necessitated first negotiating a truce with the Mori clan and that truce, which was signed three days after Nobunaga's death, got a lot more complicated when you factored in that both the Mori and the Oda, despite their truce, had naval mercenaries nominally under their command, who now really did not like each other and were not very interested at all in honoring any truces. And so this all gets a little complicated. For example, after the ceasefire, Mori Teromoto told the Noshima Murakami to stop raiding Oda clan shipping, to which Murakami Takeyoshi said, Sure, I'd be happy to do that, except that means cutting my income from raiding, and I need to make up the difference. Gotta balance those budgets, y'all know how it is. So how about I make up the difference by raiding and seizing more land from the Kurushima Murakami? And of course, once that got started, the Kurushima Murakami complained to Hideyoshi, who told the Mori to stop the raids and also to give the Kurushima some of their land back, with Mori Teramoto then saying, of course, I'll get right on that, before dashing off this letter to the Noshima Murakami, quote, Given Hideyoshi's victories, doubtless you have heard rumors that the Kurushima will soon be returning to Io, which is where the Noshima had taken these lands from the Kurushima. Please rest assured, there is no way we'd allow this to happen." Unquote. 
And of course, throughout this entire back and forth, the Kurushima and Noshima continued to raid and take territory from each other. Rather than running down the whole list of islands in the Inland Sea which were swapped back and forth between the two sides, and all the raids and counter-raids, I'm just going to put a pin in this one by noting that it took until Hideyoshi's conquest of Shikoku in 1583, a full three years after his truce with the Mori clan, for the Kurushima and Noshima Murakami to finally stop fighting each other. Despite the repeated insistence of both Mori Teramoto and Toyotomi Hideyoshi that the fighting should end, the only thing that actually got them to stop going at each other was Hideyoshi's ascendancy as the most powerful man in Japan. Remember, what enabled piracy in Japan during this period was specifically the fractured nature of political power. Pirate lords could play landed counterparts off each other to great advantage. Consider the position of your average daimyo warlord with any coastal territory to your name before this point. Maybe you don't want to work with the Murakami pirates. Maybe you'd rather avoid mercenaries altogether. That's nice, but frankly you don't really have an option. Because you might feel that way, but your neighbor might feel differently and be perfectly willing to pay the Murakami to go at you. Even if that's not the case, you needed money to fund your own war efforts and commercial shipping was a big money maker. That in turn requires your shipping to be protected, something else you had to go to the Murakami for, unless you felt like rolling the dice on losing a lot of cash to pirate raids. As we've seen, groups like the Murakami could exploit this dynamic by pitting potential rival landed lords against each other, seeing who would be the highest bidder for Murakami protection. And those bids didn't just come in the form of money, land, or more traditional incentives, the Murakami and other pirate lords could go to their landed counterparts for other, far rarer prizes, tokens of political legitimacy. The power the Murakami wielded afforded them a certain measure of respect, as we've seen with their patrons falling over themselves to be polite to these up-jumped pirates, to swear oaths of friendship to them and afford them titles and dignities normally reserved for samurai. It was, my friends, a good time to be a pirate. Hideyoshi's conquest, however, changed this dynamic at a fundamental level. Now, there were no more neighbors to pit against each other, at least not in the same way, because a big part of the reason lords pledged themselves first to Nobunaga and then to Hideyoshi was that by doing so they got protection. You didn't have to worry about being wiped out by your neighbor if your neighbors knew that doing so would invite retaliation from men who had a reputation for being, let's call it, direct in expressing their displeasure at any perceived slights to their authority. Meanwhile, Hideyoshi himself was very invested in proving his legitimacy by taming piratical behavior. He wanted to be the supreme figure in Japan, pacifying the country on land and at sea, and part of making that claim was having the ability to restrict or control violence in the country. Put in less flowery political science-y terms, Hideyoshi wanted to be the one who decided who got hurt when and how much. Having pirates just go around seizing ships all willy-nilly went against that, and so he wasn't going to stand for it. He also made it clear in the first of several anti-piracy edicts published in 1587 that lords who failed to suppress piracy were in for trouble. Quote, Those responsible for the territories where the guilty are based are to have their domains and other holdings confiscated in perpetuity." Unquote. 
In other words, stop those pirates or I will take literally everything from you. But Hideyoshi didn't just rely on his authority or his military power to enforce this shift. One of the things that made him a very successful politician was his ability to deploy both the carrot and also the stick when it was needed. Remember, we've talked before about how many of these pirate lords had pretensions of acting like landed lords. They would take on the style of elite aristocrats, give themselves fancy titles, and just generally try to act the role of the samurai lord. And so Hideyoshi offered them one hell of a carrot. You want to act like samurai? Fine, you can even be samurai. And that status was kind of a big deal because of one of the other things Hideyoshi did during this period. He started locking down the country's social structure. During the civil wars, social status had been pretty fluid. If you were a good warrior who started going around calling yourself a member of the samurai class, nobody was going to dig too deeply as to whether you actually were a part of a warrior family or anything like that. Help, that's how Hideyoshi himself came to power. Remember, he was from a family that essentially moonlighted as warriors, and only really developed his elite status based on his successes on the battlefield. That's also why he changed his family name from the more generic Hashiba to the more regal-sounding Toyotomi. However, in the time-honored tradition of powerful men across history, Hideyoshi decided to kick out this ladder of social mobility after he finished climbing it, freezing people into a specific social class as a way to make for a more stable social structure. So basically, these pirate lords were given a one-time offer. Be accepted as samurai, peer of other samurai families, or get locked out of the upper rungs of the new order that Hideyoshi is making. Within the span of a few years, the three Murakami families were, for example, transformed into more traditional retainer samurai families, complete with landed castles and surrounding territories, ranked by the income of their lands as figured in koku, bushels of rice. Even though most of their lands were not agricultural, the prestige of their domains was still determined by the rice equivalent of their domain's production. For example, both the Noshima and Innoshima Murakami branches were made into retainers of the Mori family. They retained a specific hereditary status as managers of the domain navy, but beyond that they were treated like any other samurai family. I've been unable to find precisely where the Innoshima Murakami ended up, but after some shuffling, the Noshima Murakami were ultimately installed in Takehara and Ebashima in Aki province, what's now Hiroshima prefecture. The Noshima ended up even fighting against Tokugawa Ieyasu. In 1600, they led a Mori clan force to go after some pro-Tokugawa families in the area. Murakami Motoyasu himself was actually killed in that battle. The Kurushima Murakami, meanwhile, ended up ultimately as independent daimyo in their own right, being bequeathed Mori domain, which of course has nothing to do with the Mori clan. It's actually off in Kyushu, in what's now Oita Prefecture. These transformations are also part of the reason why understanding how these families operated is so tricky. As these families settled into their new samurai status, they also wrote family histories that, let's say, massaged the reality a little bit in order to portray their families as less mercenary than was strictly historically accurate. For example, the Inoshima Murakami produced a somewhat verbosely titled family history of the broader Murakami clans entitled Annals of the Eternal Glory of a Warrior House, a chronicle of the battles of the pirate houses of the three islands. 
In Japanese, this would be Buke Bandaiki, Santo Kaizoku Ke Iksa Niki. Among other things, this history rewrote the 1555 Battle of Itsukushima to make it look like all three Murakami families loyally served the Mori clan from the get-go, rather than waiting until the last possible minute and possibly bailing on the fight altogether. The Kurushima Murakami, meanwhile, actually deleted huge swaths of their own family tree in order to forge a totally non-existent family relationship to the Kono clan, a major samurai family of western Honshu. The most audacious move, however, definitely belongs to the Noshima Murakami, who outright forged a historical document claiming that they had received the title of Kainai Shogun, roughly Shogun of the Inland Sea, which is, of course, utter nonsense, as no such title or edict ever existed. There's also a fun bit of linguistic transformation that occurs during this point. Up until this time, these families called themselves Kaizoku in Japanese, literally sea bandits. But as a part of this rebrand, the Murakami families and others began using the term suigun, or navy, to describe themselves, and that is why if you look them up in Japanese, you'll probably hear them called the Murakami suigun rather than Murakami kaizoku. So with all this in mind, next week we're going to wind the clock back a bit and finally, at long last, dive into the very loaded term of wako, or Japanese pirates. Because so far, we've been focused mostly on how these pirate families operated in Japan. But the idea of Japanese pirates as fierce raiders is one with a long and powerful history in both Korea and China, so how did that come to be, and how does that relate to everything we've talked about? The answer, as we'll see, is rather complex, but also very fascinating in its own right, but it's going to have to wait until next week, because that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to new patrons Brody, Warwick Padden, Jason Stone, Alex Cornia, and most of all to Halcyon, who I'm told is having a bit of a tough time right now. I really hope you're doing better, and I hope this brightens your day up. For more on this week's episode, or any other episode, or to submit your ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time for our fourth and final part.